Michael Schaefer, Ross Johnson, Matt Schultz, and Landon Fry are all are all here. It's free, <laughs> free. I'm just gonna say it. I've been thinking it for ten minutes. I don't want a podcast here. Oh yeah. Now I've seen the road. Pregnancy is a beautiful thing. Pregnancy is a gift. Paint sticks to asteroids. Like, We are called to emerge from that default setting of self-involvement. We're back. We're in the final speeches from the 80s series. Landon's our host. Ellie Vissell is the speech giver. Landon, what else we got going on tonight? What's the speech Ellie gave? Yes, so he was a Holocaust survivor, uh, a noted author, thinker, philosopher, um, wrote over 50 books. One short one in particular called Night is his... um, most infamous one that likely got him the Nobel Peace Prize in 1986. This is his acceptance speech um, for for night, about a hundred page book, uh, intimately describing the um, the highlights of the 11 month period when he was age 15 with his family in. Uh, Romania, captured, overtaken, um, and put into the concentration camps in Germany during World War II. Let's take a listen to that speech. And it is with a profound sense of humility that I accept the honor, the highest there is, that you have chosen to bestow upon me. I know Your choice transcends my person. Do I have the right to represent the multitudes who have perished of whom you have spoken? Do I have the right to accept this great honor on their behalf? Does anyone? I do not. No one may speak for the dead. No one may interpret their mutilated dreams and visions. I remember. It happened yesterday or eternities ago. A young Jewish boy discovered the kingdom of night. I remember his bewilderment. I remember his anguish. It all happened so fast. The ghetto, the decrees, the persecutions the deportation, the sealed cattle car, the fiery altar upon which the history of my people and the future of mankind were meant to be sacrificed. I remember that young boy asked his father, tell me, he said, can this be true? This is the 20th century after all. This is not the Middle Ages. 
who would allow such crimes to be committed? And how could the world remain silent? I also explained to that boy who was asking me questions how naive he was, how naive we all were. The world did know and remained silent. And that is why I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must speak. We must take sides. For neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. There is so much injustice and suffering crying out for our attention. Victims of hunger, of racism, and political persecution. Certain fascist regimes, like in Chile, or Marxist regimes, like in Ethiopia and in other places of the world, where writers and poets are prisoners, and there are so many prisoners in so many lands, by the left, by the extreme left, and by the right, the extreme right. Now, you know, as I do, that human rights are being violated on every continent. More people are oppressed than free. How can one not be sensitive to their plight? Human suffering anywhere concerns men and women everywhere. And in spite of what some extreme critics have said about me, that principle applies in my life also to the Palestinians, to whose plight I am sensitive, but whose methods I deplore when they lead to violence. Violence is not the answer. Terrorism is the most dangerous of answers. I know they are frustrated, and that is understandable and something must be done about it. The refugees in the refugee camps and their misery, the children and their fear, the uprooted and their hopelessness, I know. Let Israel be given a chance. Let hatred and danger be removed from her horizons and there will be peace in and around the Holy Land. Yes, I have faith. I have faith in God, in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I even have faith in his creation. Without faith, no action would be possible. And action is the only remedy to indifference. Our lives no longer belong to us, no longer belong to us alone. They belong to all those who need us desperately. And therefore, I say thank you, Chairman Egil Orwick, and thank you, the very distinguished members of the Nobel Committee, and thank you, people of Norway. Thank you, people of Norway, for declaring on this singular occasion that our survival 
has meaning for mankind. So uh, I did choose this speech. Um, we're in the 1980s. We focused on the 1980s. I thought uh, a speech that maybe got into like just what were the best speeches of the 1980s. This one did come up, and I thought it was prescient and timely that the perspective mentioned the current events that surround us. So, and even some really specific comments on what he thinks of Israel and Palestine built in there, and how he thinks about world oppression today. Initial takes, reactions. Well, I think the, uh, I mean, the one comment uh, comparing the 20th century, not, you know, is this the 20th century, not the Middle Ages? Uh, I think that one, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to think that we've outgrown, especially in just a very comfortable era of American history, at least, um, that we, you know, that we've outgrown violence and um, cruelty. And so, yeah, I thought that was just a salient comparison. Um, just 20th century is probably more deadly than almost any other one. Other thing, I thought the line he mentioned about, you know, we must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Um, I, I thought that that quote was interesting because I think in the modern conflict, I could see both sides using that quote to justify their positions. I think my first reaction from the speech, um, just kind of when he talked about it, like the, from the young Jewish boy, and he's, <clears throat> excuse me, and he said, you know, I remember his bewilderment, his, ang his bewilderment, his anguish, um, he asked my father, can this be true? So, kind of like Matt said, it's like I first, I feel like the first time I read it, kind of this sense of like, oh, that's kind of a, a child that just doesn't understand, um, how violent and cruel the world can be. Uh, and then the second time I thought about it, though, I was just like, man, I feel like it's, maybe it's not good that, I almost felt like that naive child, in some ways, is probably how we should look at uh, the world and violence and cruelty, as opposed to just such easy, so, as, as opposed to just accepting it so easily. Yeah, but but Desaurus set the context for Ellie. So it's not super clear because Ellie's referring to himself, I As believe, in the third person yeah. there, right? At that point, right? So he's effectively quoting his words from the book Night, right? So, and he says those words quite a ways into the... Um, maybe like a quarter of the way into his ordeal that he experienced. And uh, that's certainly not the words a, of a naive child. I know what you're saying, Ross, but just to sort of set the context a little bit better there. Um, okay, going back to my first reactions there. Yeah, as I said, you know, I listened to the speech. It's not so... I, I did look up trying to clarify like why specifically he won the Nobel Peace Prize at this particular time. Uh, like, I understand what he did. He was a general, you know, he extrapolated the sense of oppression that Jews experienced, most significantly during the Holocaust, of course, um, and then used that as a lens to um, interpret the oppression and need for justice among other oppressed peoples right 
Um, so that's what he generally did. But yeah, from the speech, it's not super clear in just a little bit of reading outside of it of what specific things like that might have happened close to 1986 that the Nobel committee said, oh, it's time for Ellie to win a Nobel Peace Prize. I don't know if any of you guys can answer that. I, I That's a good question. I don't know for sure. I would just imagine that there was, you know, there's just always been conflict since the wars in Israel, and I just wonder if the West kind of put this at the forefront and tried to remind everyone <laughs> of why Israel exists. Um, the other thing, as I was sharing with the rest of you guys before this, I did list, I had not read his book Night ever. I had heard of it, but never read it. And thankfully I was able to find a, um, free version of it on, uh, Spotify that you could listen to an audiobook. Highly recommend the read. three and a half hours to listen to all the way through. And it was... I, it was really disturbing. I was I was riveted, not in like an excited way, obviously listening to it, but just engaged. And it we, we all you know we all have these kinds of experiences reading this or that kind of book or a book like this, right? Uh, from time to time, and this was definitely one of these books for me of him going through this experience over the court. You said it was 11 months? Landon? I did, yeah. They. Um, yeah, okay, that sounds right. Started when he was 15, yep. um, when the Nazis uh, came to his area there. But one of the most interesting things, I'm just going to set here, and we'll revisit more detail later, that I don't know if he touches on in this speech, maybe. I think he, I feel like he does, yeah. He talks about, there's, in this I identify strong with this, just in my own personal faith experience. He really um, struggles with the notion of God in the midst of not just knowing this happened, obviously, but experiencing it. So throughout this, this story, he's constantly referencing experiences and thoughts that he has relative to that belief and then also observing what the other jewish people in his midst are experiencing with regards to that that emergence of atheism and ultimately reformed judaism right that complete denial there is no possible way could we could be god's chosen people after this like just period um so yeah those are the things stuck out to me book sort of led me to the or the speech led me to the book night which sort of explains some of those experiences yeah. in more mm -hmm. detail there so nice ross had you heard of this book prior i had never heard of it no and i did not read it <laughs> yeah i just read it uh the last couple of days, again, a short read. He just details, you know, each paragraph is kind of a, <clears throat> it all happened quickly from just like getting round up, put in a ghetto in their hometown, um, and then moved three or four times from camps to Auschwitz, back to a labor camp, um, all the while, I think, um, 
yeah, the Germans were just trying to get them away from the front lines. Even they were so close to the Russian front lines in their hometown before he was uh, moved out. And hearing him give an interview with Charlie Rose, uh, and even in some of his, he gave a pretty big speech to um, during the Clinton administration as well, probably after the peace accords that Clinton got done. Like every little step was just like, well, they're gonna do this one thing to us. He had all these exit ramps. Um, there was a, a Christian housekeeper or like kind of a maid who worked in the ghetto and like offered them like, hey, you should come to my like mountain house with me. Like I can get you out of here. And they were like, you know, why? Like we're, we're in the ghetto right now, it's not that bad. Um, and, and then even, uh, he was a little bit sick during one of the moves from a camp, from a, yeah, concentration camp to another and had a chance to just stay back in the sick ward, but didn't know if, you know, he'd basically be executed if he was left sick and all the sick people who did stay were just like freed the next day. And he was still, um, with everyone moved on and I think, um, had to suffer through it for several more months. Um, and then it just got obviously very bad, but. So maybe can we take a little step back? You referenced the reason for choosing a speech relative to the global context of what lead us into that. <laughs> Hamas attacked Israel about a month ago now kind of re-highlighting the tension surrounding these two regions. Give us like the hundred word version first of just generally speaking, why there's tension between these regions, nothing fancy. And then maybe get into the uh, history of the kingdoms, the Hittites maybe. <laughs> get the Hittites in here. Can't forget the Hittites. Right. <laughs> Recent conflict started with Hamas invading and then retaliatory bombing to root out Hamas, which is the elected government of Gaza. Gaza is separated non-Israeli proper Palestinian land. Um, that basically is a group of people that uh, from my perspective, they got caught in a bad pinch the day that the state of Israel was declared in 1948 and have been pawns in a, in a political game ever since. Um, and so they're both fighting over the ownership and control of, of Palestine, of, of Israel, of the West Bank, of Gaza. Kind of, yeah, can also be probably described as as Arabs versus Jews, though there are a small amount of Christians and Arabs on both sides, like 30% of Israel is probably Arab. Um, a couple of other things that just to set the proper scene right, you obviously have Arabs being more traditionally Muslim, right? And you have that antagonism between... Israel being Jewish, this is Canaan, right? This is the land that God promised Abraham and other Jewish people in the generations after. So you have that going on. So when the when the news 
Yeah, when the news did hit, I was kind of like, man, I feel like I've read about this before. I know something. I know Truman made Israel a state in '48, but like, what was going on before that over there? Um, and obviously, I know, you know, Canaanites, but I had like this. What is that? A thirty-four hundred year gap in knowledge, perhaps, um, to fill in. So, rapid fire rundown. Shall we go through it? Yeah, let's yeah. do it. Yeah, fill that us was, in. Uh, rapid fire. Canaanites and Hittites, probably, um, were the tribal people prior to Israel that they came out of Egypt and took the land from from the Canaanites and Hittites. This was fifteen hundred BC, written written document, um, even. Even Ellie says in a lot of his speeches, 3,500-year history, gets us right back to 1,500. Solomon's first temple, so the first Jewish temple, King Solomon, um, Book of Proverbs, all that good stuff, 970 BC. His sons could not keep the kingdom in two. The house divided speech was not Abraham Lincoln's first. It was, uh, I think, David or Solomon. But the, the house was divided into Judea to the south and Israel to the north. The kingdom of Judea is more what we probably, has a little more history than Israel to the north. The Assyrians conquered it in 722. Also the Babylonians then exiled the Jews in 586 BC and they destroyed Solomon's temple. This is called the first diaspora. They were removed from the land. A lot of ungodly Jewish kings who did not have favor in God's sight. Uh, the Persians then ran it until 322 BC and then a, a man came along and conquered it called Alexander the Great. And so the Greeks were, the Greeks were uh, head of the land for 120 years. And then we get to the main story you may know about the Jewish people, and that is the Maccabees. They did not want to worship Zeus. Also, we're in the in-between. Yeah. Uh, they did not want to worship Zeus, so they revolted. The temple had been rebuilt. Uh, Cyrus the Great let them rebuild it in 516. So there's a second temple up. Greeks are running it. They're taking all, they're making people worship Zeus in the temple. Maccabees come in, they get the Greeks out, but there's only one can of oil. They light the Torah, menorah, menorah, excuse me, um, and it miraculously lasts seven days. So that was the context for Hanukkah. Uh, it was the outing of the Greek gods in the second Jewish temple. So now the Jews are back in charge, 167 BC to 63 BC. Um, an empire called the Romans come in. But there was a really powerful um, Jewish man called Herod, and he got to kind of run the kingdom to his own liking um, and pleased pleased Rome in the manner that he did it. So a little bit of a, it was Roman, but also Herod had quite a bit of power there. Um, Titus, the Roman Empire in 7 AD, destroyed the second temple. Um killed and exiled all the Jews, 70 AD, diaspora number two. Byzantines come in, 324. This is Constantine, Christian, Roman, Byzantine emperor. He builds, his mom builds a Christian church on the ruins of the second temple. 
that lasts for 300 years. Then um, uh, Muhammad in Islam is created in 638. They run it until 1099. Crusaders from the West in Christendom come from 1099 to 1260. Then a lot of <clears throat> um, Eastern Europeans, some Egyptians, kind of a slave class from um, a very large geography come in, convert to Islam, and run it until 1517. They're overtaken by the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire has a far-reaching influence over it until 1918. At the end of World War One. the Allies beat the Axis, which was the Ottoman Empire, were uh, um, uh, a part of the Axis powers. So Britain... Britain kind of basically owns the entire Middle East. Um, there's these vague lines. Part of it's called Persia. Part of it's called Arabia. Part of it's called like British Mandate. Afghanistan's in there a little. But you can imagine it's just a lot of tribes and towns and people groups that for 500 years have been ruled far off in Turkey and now are ruled far off from London. Um... At this time in 1918, Britain is making written plans called the Balfour Declaration. They will establish a settlement in Israel and are planning to allow Jews to come back. Jews are starting to migrate back as early as 1900 and are reestablishing the land, setting up farmer settlements. Um, the atrocities of World War II happen. 1948, law goes into effect. Granted, 46, 47, 48 countries like Iraq and Iran and Jordan and Lebanon and Syria and Saudi Arabia are all created. The lines are drawn. They are imposed. They are imposed upon to be nations when they have really not been before. Um, and an example of that is like the Kurds and the Sunnis and the Shiites. If you look at a map of those tribes they kind of are all over the place in Iraq and nations were set up and kind of forced them all to get together. So Israel was created as a part of that <clears throat> map making process in 46 to 48. If you look at a map of, of this area in 1900-1918, it's all kind of like a British mandate with very like curvy lines like this area is kind of this. Um, these really hard, I mean, if you look at the country of Iraq today, it's like a pentagon or a, um, trapezoid. Um, did not look like that. So that that gets us to Israel. The day... I would just very, very briefly, just a question to keep our... I wonder, and I'm sure we learned this in like eighth grade social studies, what Britain's incentive was to... I'll use this in the proper context here, colonize the Middle East, like what, what they were materially gaining. Right. You know? It was kind of like a, it's, it's when you go back and read every empire, like the Greeks conquered Egypt in this area and then the Romans conquered it. When you read about um, like Napoleon and the French came in and conquered Egypt and then part of the first part of the World War II was us fighting the Germans in North Africa and Egypt. 
for some reason, I think it's mostly resource-based, perhaps oil. It's like <clears throat> get, it's kind of easy to go get that perhaps and get the resources and then fund the war back home. But there, it's always involved in kind of the, the fight over the whole region. And so the Allies won the war, Britain got to redraw it and they held some modest, moderate control to figure out how to turn it back over in however many years. Um, so when you divide it up, if you go through it, Canaanites, Israel, Persians, Greeks, Hebrews, Romans, Byzantines, Muslims, Crusaders, Mamluks, Ottomans, Brits, Israel, there's 12 of them. It's very interesting. There's three pagan reigns, three Muslim reigns, three Christian reigns, and three Jewish reigns over 3,500 years. Wow, that's so, wild. So, whose land is it? And this is where we, we make our uh, podcast joke, what about the Hittites? Let's find some Hittites, um, man. This is where Let's we start podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a, it's, it's a land acknowledgement reference to whose land is this? And in what order or what claim does any certain people group in the, the marching of time have over a particular land? Um, and the Hittites are just always left out of the conversation. And so we rep them. The Hittites, baby. <laughs> We're so progressive. So, <clears throat> so yeah, that land acknowledgement statement is interesting. Um, can, let's. Why don't we go ahead and read that state? Although I, it sort of got jumbled up. Can you reintroduce the land acknowledgement? Well, law well, it's. Uh, I, I when I think about Israel, I do think about these land acknowledgement statements that are almost required in higher education and government circles. Um, so the U of I has one. They made it in 2018, and basically, if the chancellor gets up and talks, he has to say, "This is not." We have a responsibility to acknowledge the context of which our basically civilization exists. And this is the land of the Peoria, Kaskaskia, Miami, Kickapoo people. Which begs me to kind of always question. It's like those are the tribes who were prior there before, just before white settlers. Um... You know, it doesn't mention that whoever was there in 500 or 1,000 or whatnot. Right. So, yeah, sure. um, and, and I think when you, when you think of the Israel-Palestine conflict, it is, you know, of course you can go back to two prior times that it was under Israel's control. Um, and it's, yeah, kind of like, which time? Obviously, the argument would be like the most recent time and and people that were colonized or displaced or overtaken. Um, so, hmm, yeah, how, how do we sort of step into the, the abyss here? Have you guys read much about it or tuned in or... Not really. I think initially I was following it. Um, I was following it pretty close. I guess at least the first week or so after the attack, and just um, 
and I think it was just the the horrific nature, the horrific nature of it, but also the fact that they they seemed to like they were bragging about it. You know, Hamas was like this was not a this wasn't like Israel putting out. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who say Israel faked footage, whatever, but um, I'm pretty sure no one, <laughs> no like legit sources uh, sustain that point of view. Um, but I mean, yeah, just very much like, Hey, we did this. We killed infants. We murdered old people in their home. We raped women until they were dead. Yeah. I think just the, the sheer horror of, of that, especially just having a wife and kids now, like, gosh, um, I, yeah, I, I couldn't help, but like just pay closer attention for the first week or so after, I think what made me lose interest in, or maybe not lose interest, like it's, it's still a, an important, what made me stop following it more closely was just some of the the ridiculous uh, American responses to all this, just on on a variety of sides. I would say mostly just that the people who are, just seem to be like downplaying Hamas's evil. I think just, I would kind of echo most of what Matt said, just in the sense of, and not even the timing thing, just the the response from certain people, like, I mean, important political people, like like representatives and senators and stuff, it just was very surprising to me. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, I don't know how much we want to get, like, politics and stuff as far as, like, current U.S., but just kind of a little bit of a surprise that there wasn't just a universal response to it um, because it just seemed not simple, but obvious, I guess, in a lot of ways to me. I think I think it's been a um, a real world test in the most profound way possible so far of the application of critical theory, right? Because what crit, critical race theory, remember, of course, is just a one single branch of this broader critical theory, which basically, as I understand it, has as its it scales that you basically make moral judgments based upon whoever has more or less power, right? Well, if you have more power, then you're in the wrong. If you have less power, you're in the right. Like, that's just simply how it is in in that particular um, perspective, to put it nicely. But with this case, obviously, you're dealing with two groups who on both an American stage, but also global stage, tend to occupy fairly less substantial roles, right, between Jews and Muslims. And that's, yeah, I mean, I, so I think that's basically why you have this split, particularly among the left. But at the same time, you have this Trump-like figure in Benjamin Netanyahu, who's this populist, and you have just, and I was reading Wall Street Journal recently, just the really um, vibrant expressions of Zionism, just being very, very much on this is, focusing on the religious dimension of their place within it. Netanyahu did? Or Wall Street Journal did? So it's like you have Wall Street Journal uh, had this. It's just some, just basically simple commentary. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. this, uh, yeah, right. So you have this like just tension then, 
right? Because in, in the United States, the Jewish people have traditionally been on the left, right? I was reading, again, the Wall Street Journal, how significant of a role they had in, um, quote-unquote, creating civil rights for African Americans in the United States, right? They were, they were allies, because, of course, they understood. Versus now, you know, again, like I was just saying, you have that more conservative if to put it really simply flavor going on in israel which so many people on the left of the united states just don't like because conservative oh that's colonial and that's power and that's bad like that's that that seems to be the extent of the moral discernment sure. going on here um yeah, so that that's sort of my interpretation of of the nature of that split. But uh, so, but the bright side of that again, because I have listened some things on NPR, there is definitely they're not pro Hamas. Some of the commentators, but somewhat sympathetic. But there are NPR journalists, obviously a lot of them Jewish, who are very much. Hamas is in the wrong, right? You said being that dogmatic voice, which has been encouraging. So the bottom line I'm trying to like loop around here is that that short I think it is illustrating the short sightedness and inadequacy of the real world of critical theory for moral discernment. Yeah, and I was really curious as to how that would play out because like I Prior to this, like, I was just only vaguely aware that, like, oh, yeah, like, liberal critical theory people, like, yeah, they like Palestine. Like, they root for them, you know. And then when this first happened, I'm like, gosh, there's, like, how in the world is anyone going to justify this? You know, was, like, my first thought. And then, like, two days later, people right. started justifying it. Um, right. But, yeah, no, I think that is a, a good point, Mike, that. Yeah, this is kind of the testing ground where it's like, oh yeah, that like our math is off, you know. Um, if you're if right. you're rooting for the people who, you know, uh, are raping women with broken legs on cars, like that's not a good group to to be rooting for. Yeah, the Abby Martin interview that Landon directed us to with Joe Rogan, I think, demonstrates the um, creativeness, if you will, of creating the moral equivalence between, I mean, basically the United States and anyone whom we consider evil, you know, like North Korea or China in certain respects or Russia. Like, yeah, in you, in it, yeah, you just get, you get a good sense of how that that is done. I mean, I think, I think both the speech and the long history that we went through are just ways to better understand the situation. And because we're funding the war, perhaps some would argue both sides. If you look at funding Iran and what Iran does with, you know, I think they're the primary backers of Hamas. So it's just like U.S. weapons against each other <laughs> abby says iran doesn't have nukes they're only using nuke technology for electricity <laughs> she was pretty adamant about that yeah um but i think one of the dissenting opinions would be um uh that yeah the problem with israel is that separate from the religious claims like it is it 
it is an ethnic state. It's a white ethnic state in the hemisphere of the world, the West, that really doesn't have that anymore. Um, and in order to uphold an ethnic state on such a small plot of land, yeah, you've got to basically keep a lot of people out who may have otherwise had some claim to it even a couple decades ago. And so I think that just the, probably the fact that, yeah, to maintain an ethnic state goes, there's some practices that probably aren't upheld. Um, so I, I think one of the things that she threw out was basically if a neighborhood is, you know, 80-20, 70-30, I think is what you're... 60-40, I guess. 70-30, yeah, 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 yeah. But, like, you know, houses would be confiscated from Arabs if, if there were too many Arabs in a neighborhood upon, like, somebody in the family passing and um, just to, yeah, basically require that Israel continues to hold the majority of the vote. Um one of the interesting things when you look at the history as well, it's like how did, so there's about 5 million Palestines in West Bank and Gaza. Israel is a population of 9 million. Um, at one time when they fought against Egypt, they kind of reclaimed Gaza and all the people. When the war first broke out in 48, the Arab countries are raining down. They're telling all of the Arabs to get out because it's going to get bad, so they flee. They end up on the edges, and the Arab countries don't let those refugees at this point in, but they're not in Israel because they left their home, and they've basically been stuck in this limbo almost since day one. Gaza was a part was a part of Egypt for several years, and in the West Bank, a part of Jordan, and they never let them like cross into Egypt. Um, they've kept them in these limbo states and over it's probably been two generations of repopulation now they're just a huge population themselves that are not welcome not only in israel but every single arab country the world kind of yeah doesn't isn't figuring out what to what to do with them I think kind of the, like your comment, not figuring out what to do, like I think it's a little bit like this kind of shows sometimes too just, at least with the practicals of like what do you do now if you're, you know, Israel or whatever, like it's just always not, I don't know, I feel like America's in an interesting place um, and it's kind of the whole, I guess, not just America, but it's easy to point fingers when you're not the one in the conflict, but just how in a mess like right so you've named how many people have been the rulers how much you know world there's these world wars in there that affected how the maps got drawn so like when there's all of this just messiness and brokenness there's not always like it so like even like to talk to talk about the current conflict so yeah there's a lot of palestinians in gaza that are you know not wanting to be part of this and all of that and it's also hard for israel right now though because it's like but we're not just tolerating this group anymore that's running is in charge of these people like they've literally attacked us and are putting us in danger so what do you do and it just i think shows to like anytime conflict and violence and war gets involved like there's not a good answer which i think just builds frustration in myself over how americans sometimes respond to it if i'm yeah i don't know just with the 
almost trying to take a moral high ground and try to sound like they're, you know, in the know and it's not actually trying to understand the situation and how to best get out of it. Yeah, there's two two sides and there's certain colors of feathers of political ideologies easily identifiable with both and Well I think even Matt put it in the Matt put it in the notes or something and um or maybe it was Matt, but somebody put it in the notes like you don't have two groups here that are willing to work towards a peaceful resolution. Right? So it, like people are calling for a ceasefire and things like that. It's like understand that there's, you know, innocent people in danger and being killed, but it's kind of like, well, what's the solution? You know, because the, the status quo doesn't work when one of the groups wants to kill the other one. Yeah, I mean, I think that was in the end because uh, one of the questions just to get things moving was like, right, or, you know, what's the, like, what's a generous pro-Israel argument? What's like the generous Palestine? You know, if you were to just be as generous as you can to both sides, like, what would that look like? And yeah, just to be, I guess, generous to the, uh, to Israel, like, Sure. Like, I'm sure there are people there who would love a two-state solution. I can't speak for every politician in Israel, of course, but like, um, but yeah, who is like a trustworthy second state to negotiate with? And like, I don't know that there is one right now. Maybe there were in the past and there were issues, like, I don't know, like, I don't, that much of the history I, I couldn't speak to, but, but yeah, like, I don't know that there's anyone that an Israelite. On the Palestinian side? Yeah, that would, that would be yeah, true. I yeah, mean, and yeah. And the interesting thing is, is that Hamas was elected. You know what I mean? Like it's, they did give control over in 05. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's and that's where like there's at least some public support among like regular Palestinian citizens, which is like a, I don't know. I mean, it, of course, like I, I, I mean, I'm very sympathetic to like, yeah. I mean, if Britain in 1948 just decided to like boot your grandparents out. <laughs> of their homes, you know, that they had been in for generations. Like, yeah, I don't blame you for being yeah. bitter. <clears throat> uh, to briefly respond to that, the response that I've heard on that point is Hamas took over in, like Lena said, 2007. And, but there has, I think you've been breaking up quite a bit. You might have said other things. But a lot of the population is very young. So the argument is that, well, Hamas is not in power because of the majority adults who are there right now. It's because of old old people. So just uh, clarify that point. But Which is probably just, you know, yeah, one of those gray areas that could go either way. It's like, well, I don't know. It's like, did they choose this governor or not? Well, it could sort of go either way. You know, I think, yeah, again, just one of those, yeah, gray, gray. If if there were an easy solution to this, it would, wouldn't be, uh, we wouldn't be podcasting on it. You know, something else is sort of like that I've sort of thought about, <clears throat> you know, and this ties into the uh, land acknowledgement um statement that you shared with uh native american tribes thought experiment okay 1945 or i guess well maybe 1917 would make more sense life before 1918 when british and you know more european jews would have been uh mingling around that region right and it would have been mostly all arab people because they were just occupying this region that Jews didn't really live in after all of those occupations that Landon pointed out in the hundreds of years before 
the Jews had last been there, you know, in 70 AD, I guess, most significantly. And so it's like, well, you start doing your thing. I mean, that's such a long time that is going to become your home. And why are you going to care if... I mean, even in fairness, the most rational um, Palestinian in that region... You, you could you could have heard about the Holocaust. Oh my gosh, million... Like, the Jewish people were almost extinct, I heard, in one commentary on the Holocaust, right? You could hear that and be like, whoa, that's so tragic and sad. And then you hear from President Truman and the other white people of the uh, new coming United Nations saying, oh, we're going to put a new country here. We're going to give it to the Jews who almost died. We're going to put it right here where your house is, right? And not just your house, but your neighbor's house and their neighbor's house and their neighbor's house. Like, boy, that's going to put a strain on even just the most generous-hearted Palestinian person, right? I mean, just imagine that, you know, we're extending the, the threads of this thought experience. So that's... I think that's sort of enough, and this sort of cuts in what you're saying, Ross, is like that's sort of like the beginning thought experiment that everyone needs to begin with this. <laughs> Two points of interest, a little bit of a scene setting. Have you ever heard of Lawrence of, of Arabia? Oh, yeah. Classic. So he would, Although we didn't finish in. He school. was a British kind of Superman. I think he was an intellectual Oxford pretty studious but then he went to basically israel palestine and he fought with all of the arab tribes to beat back the ottoman empire so he got to know everybody um and rounded them up and like led the the charge to yeah on that side of the front just an interesting point so he was around in 1918 and then i think let's just for uh as generous as possible yeah let's say they did start the jews started moving back to israel and that they took homes possible maybe you know that for a fact mostly though like it's a pretty desolate desert area i mean they built tel aviv and all these cities and farms from scratch like no one was there there was like the arab town down the road and it's like five miles away, 10,000 Jews just moved there. Of course, that is for sure a culture shock. I don't, I don't know if it was quite as like run everybody out of town. The Jews are moving back. So, yeah. um, Tribalism's a thing. So I, I remember hearing, and we might have even mentioned this once a long time ago on the podcast, but they did like a study, and I'm going to paraphrase it, so, but it's going to get the gist. Uh, Landon and Matt, your tribe A, Mike and me or Tribe B. Um, either tribe way, but a? so you some they somehow like you know they randomly assign these people to just completely you know it wasn't like oh you're a free and you're a farmer it was like numbers or letters something completely arbitrary and yet people had different responses if like bad things happened to people that were in their groups versus so even it's not even like oh your family member got hurt versus some guy you don't know it was like oh. You know, someone in group A got hurt versus someone in group B got hurt, you would respond differently based on what group you were in. So I think just trying to kind of highlight this idea that tribalisms, you know, if that's the word we want to use, almost ingrained in us, um, which obviously can 
contribute heavily to these different situations, uh, you know, over conflict and war and nations and religions and these type of things. So I guess just my question was like, do you guys think that's a bad thing? Yeah, I mean, it sounds bad to say tribalism because we're picturing like, crazy things, but just kind of this idea that when you associate, it's almost the opposite of colorblindness, but apply that to everything, race, uh, religion, everything. So this idea that, oh, you view every single person the same because we're all human, we're part of the human family versus like, no, like we do seem to kind of stick with our group and, you know, care about them more. And that seems to be the way things are. But is that a bad thing or not? Makes me think, have you ever heard of Dunbar's number? It is basically the amount of people that you can reasonably be in, like, relationships in a community or friendships um, with kind of like an optimal tribe of people um, who can coexist peacefully is is about the number. I think, I don't know, when I think of Native American Indian tribes, I always picture them probably being about that numbered size, even though certainly some Illinois. What did you say the number was? Sites. 150. Yeah, even rewinding the clock 200 years, 90% of people lived on farms. Their church was probably their Dunbar's number of 150, and like that's just who you interacted with. And fast forward to today, and we've got all kinds of kind of nefarious, not nefarious, um, uh, almost like artificial digital internet affiliations, political party affiliations that go kind of outside of the realm of a physical arm's length Dunbar's number level of community and we have to cheer for, I don't know, empires of which we are part of that are fighting battles, you know, halfway across the world that we really know nothing about. Yeah, let me extend that thought a little bit. So to answer Ross, no, I it, it's it's one of the, it's a it's a fe- it's a simple feature of being human, and it can be good, it can be bad, right? Like uh, so many things. And I think yeah, to extend what Lane was, I think about to say something. I mean, I, we were talking about conspiracy theories briefly before. What did the show. I say that was conspiratorial there? <laughs> no, I'm. I'm just. No, kidding. no, no, no. You you didn't say. Oh, okay. No, but conspiracy theories and or e- even not conspiracy theories, but just like um, you could even just say like quirky beliefs or something. I think a lot of these things occupy the role that tribes you know your 150 person church that you went to every sunday or your moose lodge or whatever the role that those used to be have it's like because little uh billy right i mean he need he needs community like that's that's built in you need your tribe Right, your various kinds of tribes. You know, you could certainly belong to several different kinds. But like, where do I get that? I don't know. I'm gonna go on the internet where I get everything. And oh, oh, I like that. I like the Free Palestine tribe, and I like the uh, anti-vax tribe, and right, all all these different things. You just 
it's so easy. Like, that's how you collect these. But, of course, you don't actually get anything meaningful from them. So then, now I'm going to sound like conspiracy. But then, so then you end up, like, injecting yourself with dopamine every time you post some nonsense, toxic, toxic message on Facebook. And, like, that, that's, there's your sacrament. There's your baptism with your group. You're good. Yeah. Yeah, no, there are, <laughs> yeah, set. that's, there are... For sure, secular sacraments, and yeah, it's a good analogy. <clears throat> yeah, and you have you have your prophet, you have your prophets, obviously, in there who are your, your, uh, your creeds and, your and whatnot. confessions of sins. Yeah. Yep, thou shalt not eat gluten, for thou shalt getteth bloated. Um, <laughs> but but uh, with the try like. Because if you're in a, if you're just in a group of 150 people who you live in close proximity with, and you work with on a day to day basis, and who you rely on to help you out, and they rely on you to help them out, if that's how you're living your life, tribalism is probably awesome. You know what I mean? Because that's how you're going to. That's how you're going to subsist. That's how you're going to exist. That's how. Your tribe, that's the only way your tribe's going to survive. It's when you get tribalism in a world where uh, uh, nationalism is just kind of amplifies all of that, that it gets a little bit tricky, you know, because now like not only is the, the, the tribe, the tribe's bigger, the tribe's weapons are bigger and, uh, um, now you've got bigger enemies you're going against, I guess, you know, um, which is why no one cares about the Hittites. I think, you know, they're too small, <laughs> you know, they're just a tribe, you know, they were just, a, you know, a, a Dunbar's number of however many. Maybe, maybe we can start swooping back into, uh, some thoughts that sort of tidy everything up. Ellie, let's, maybe we should bring up Ellie again, bring him back. <laughs> Um, what, what does he offer that might, that might, you know, he obviously didn't, he didn't provide that most sacred political answer of the two state solution that, uh, Vivek R. Swami probably couldn't define, but, (laughs) but, um, but what, what does he offer that can sort of potentially, that maybe this might sound a little bit too final belly. Maybe, maybe you guys can sort of play with um, what I'm getting at here. What what is his experiences and what is his uh, his contributions over the years like do for this uh, situation for your for your free Palestine people and for your uh, for your Zionists? I mean, I just keep going back to the fact that he keep, he says like, what does he say there? You cannot be neutral. He his main speech um, in front of Bill Clinton was called "Indifference." He's like, you cannot remain indifferent, um, and just compels if you. And he goes into great details on like the research that had been done, the letters. What did Roosevelt know when he knew it? And he went on this um, kind of a little bit of rant. He's like, FDR is a great guy, a great president, but like he knew in 1942. Like, all they had to do was bomb the one 
um, railroad coming into Auschwitz and you couldn't have gotten train loads of, and car loads of people. He's like, that would have just shut the thing down. Um, and he, he was like still like kind of mad at FDR for knowing, for Churchill for knowing what was going on and, and not doing anything. Um, so that was his motivation. And I think that, you know, that simple belief could probably be a part or at least one explanation for U.S. involvement in anything or being like the world police since World War II. It's like if there is enough of an apartheid in South Africa or I imagine there was reasons to get involved in Korea and Vietnam and um, Kosovo and the Gulf War. It's like if there's an inkling that there's a concentration camp or a people group that's being enslaved and we can get in there and take them out. Typically we do. Um, so he, he seems to force us to answer the question like who's in the, the oppression needs stopped and it has to perhaps be stopped with some amount of force. So it's got to be figured out um, whether it's, I don't know how that applies to the current war, but like you can't, I don't know, got to sit them down and devise a plan somehow. But inaction and indifference is, is not right. One of Landon's discussion questions was, uh, does knowing history make you less partisan? And that's I a good thoughts. way to relate that. Yeah. 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 Go and ahead. Go my ahead. response is closely related to that answer and what Ellie provide. You know, I was saying, listening to his book night, you know, and his specific experiences in the concentration camps, man, it just really makes you realize how precious life is. Like that sounds so trite, but it's, so obviously, well, no, it's not obviously true because so many of us don't don't live that way. Myself among them, you you whine to yourself, and I've started whining to myself since listening to this book. <laughs> it didn't last very long. Um, whining to yourself about the problems you experience. It's like I just wonder. I don't know if this is night, but you just wonder how many people. I mean, yeah, if it's even a Hamas terrorist, if you give them this book and in the language they hear things in, man, how how can your heart not be moved to encounter and understand as much as one can extend through Ellie's exceptional writing and observations, uh, another person suffering? And if you're not moved by that, like, I don't know. It's it's hard to imagine that a thinking person would not be moved by that. So I rem- I remember a teacher at Jabot where I was teaching said something to the effect of, you know, these kids, they just want to do whatever makes them happy. And, you know, not everything you should do makes you happy. It's like, yeah, this book is not a book that, like, makes you happy in any sense of the word. Like, oh, this is a fun book. But... I think every single high school student should read this. I did read Victor Frankel's Man's Search yeah, for Meaning. That seems like as the well, other. which obviously talks about his experience. But 
But that's more like a... He obviously talks about specific things, but it's more of like a psychological response. But this this is is, more like just day to day, this is what happened. And yeah, yeah, I would force every high school student in America to read this book. I think, yeah, these two... Yeah, I think that... I'm glad you brought up Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning. Because I think those two complement each other really, really well. Um, yeah, and just like the day to day, like, Hey, this is what, this is what evil looks like, tastes like, feels like. And then the other one, and it Frankel's more like, this is, and this is how you respond to it. Um, and it's important to think of both. Cause like, yeah, it's easy to sit back from a distance, kind of, you know, armchair quarterback in this, this, you know, conflict. I remember it's, I'm talking a lot, but one, one sentence just from Victor Frankel's book, I remember that illuminates the inadequacy of critical uh theory i remember him bringing up that there were clearly from his experience ss soldiers who were more good-hearted and kind than how many jews started to treat each other again obviously something you expect but like yeah that's a real thing too what what do you mean (laughs) i didn't understand that that there were Jews who either were or became more cruel in the concentration camps than some of the SS yeah. soldiers. It was just clear from Viktor Frankl's observation experience that that soldier is a better person than this particular Jew. But just thinking about like our sphere of influence, you know, and I think that's partly why a lot of people, right? And I've, I guess I've heard just like a little sentence here or there from like either patients or, or you know, whatever, just like, almost like saying like, you know, what can we do? Like that's beyond us. So like, what's the point of learning about it, you know? Um, or what's the point of getting invested or like, why does it matter to us if, you know, whatever. Um, and I think there's something to that. Like, yeah, there is only so much we can do. Like, we're not going to just go over there and fix it. Like, and I think it'd be disrespectful to just assume that, you know, four white dudes in Illinois, <laughs> you know, are just going to like, you know, armchair quarterback the answer to this. I And I think that's kind of where um, maybe to round out and temper my tribalism <laughs> comment from before, <laughs> you know, like that's where um, if you, you know, it reminds me of the, I, I can't remember who, I remember this quote was at the, uh, was in the movie, uh, A Hidden Life, right? So another, um, yeah. We feel like we bring that one up a lot, but the quote is something to the effect of like the fact or the, that the world isn't so, as bad as it could be is mostly due to people in unmarked graves, you know, um, something to that effect. And like, that's where I guess we fight cruelty, like within our tribe, you know what I mean? Like going too far out your, out of your tribe, you know, you just end up being another political commentator who's just spewing nonsense, you know, but within your tribe, it's like, all right, like now we can, can actually like make a change and an impact, you know? Um, and like, yeah, definitely dangerous to, to tribalism, you know, if, if that's the only thing you're, you're attentive to, or if you become, um, uh, selfish in how you enact that, or if you become kind of narrow minded in how you, uh, view your tribe and whatnot, but, um, but that is like your primary place of concern and it should be. Um, and that's where like, yeah, if you're just virtuously living out your tribe and like 
that spreads, um, you know, I suppose that's, that's kind of where, that's where we're at. You know, that's all we can do. And that's what, that's the struggle we're in. Before one thought on that, Thomas Merton said something similarly. I believe he said the, something, the effect of the best way to stop violence or war is to start within your own heart or something like that. But I don't know my last thought on it, which isn't really a thought more just a frustration, I think. And maybe it's just the sign of a difficult situation, but when you asked the question like 20 minutes ago, like or 15 minutes ago, like how can we get this back to Ellie and the speech and what can we take from it and stuff? I've just been looking through it and not to like call us out, but I feel like we're just like trying to say something pretty and just can't seem to land it. Um, nothing against anything you guys have said and myself included. Like I just, I feel like. The line that jumps out when we mentioned earlier, kind of this, you know, you have to take sides, kind of makes you want to literally pick a side in the conflict and say they're the good guys, the other side's the bad guys. And it it seems like that's, I think we would all recognize that's kind of like a lazy way of thinking. Like there's got to be a better answer than that. Right. I think we're just trying to break down the key parts and components and have a greater appreciation for the issue at hand final bell yeah but which one i know we kind of didn't hit a few of these topics so yeah, there's a lot yeah. this is a 20 page out hey guys all your strength and... all your power all your love right now <laughs> um, do we fight or we draft dodge in world war three i think mate where does this fit on the concern level it's a little yeah yeah more yeah i think that seems with... a more legit final bell so on a scale from Zero to ten. Uh, I don't know what should be our unit. I feel like this would be a whatever. I don't know. There's got to be a more fun scale. It has to be a war scale, like the War of eighteen twelve. I was gonna say on a scale from zero to ten, angry Ben Shapiro's. <laughs> <laughs> Or on a scale from zero to ten, angry uh, Rashida Talibs. Um, or just describe your position in whatever way you want. Sure, sure. I think concern level concern level is a good. Yeah, yeah. Ding, 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 ding. Fifteen. One more round. There's no stopping this now. This is our round. Don't stop it now. We're starting. We don't stop. Are you scared? All your power, all your love, everything you've got, this is your whole life. Do it now. now. How can we ask it? So the, the final bell question, the final bell question is, the final bell question is, <clears throat> Ali Wiesel tells us we should not be neutral. We should should pick a side to do the justice the most. Um, so with this war and his prompting, what do we think of the war? Is it just another conflict? Is it a blip on the radar? Um, we won't remember it in six months. Or is it much more of a concern along the lines of the progression to a global conflict that we have seen in the past century. All right, zero to ten, 
Zero's no concern. Just scrolling past. Ten is um I'm stocking up food and supplies for World War Three. I'm calling this a th- four. Three point nine. Um Yeah, I mean I'm really glad we did this because it did yeah, I I mean I had done a little bit of digging. Mike, I know you I think you posted something on Facebook, um kind of at the early on state like a history channel like six minute whatever which i thought was helpful um to just like better understand like what's going on and also um i think it does kind of frame i mean we're all yeah i mean we haven't been shy about like yeah we're all christian men and that's like an important part of our lives like you know and i think it does give us just some like context for like the world we're living in you know and it's easy to as much as like, yeah, Christianity is not what it used to be in the United States in terms of its influence. You know, a lot of people are pushing back on, on the church um, in, in a variety of ways. Um, at the same time, we're still in a pretty comfortable spot, all things considered. Um, but just good to like remind ourselves that, yeah, we live in like a really fallen world and we live in a place where like good and evil exist. And um, while we are not perhaps asked right here and now to confront Hamas in our backyard. You know, we need to, yeah, just live in a way that like we're preparing ourselves for, for confronting whatever evil is in our backyard, you know, and is in our home and, you know, around our home. So skill of concern. I initially just thought of like concern, like, Oh, in terms of more of a broad sense, like human life, all that stuff is like pretty high. Like there's a lot of people dying and stuff as we talked about the question more concern for world war three or something like that. Um, I would have to say pretty low. Um, two, if I had to pick a number, um, I will admit I was also not very concerned about COVID when I first heard about it. So, um, (laughs) kind of over one on that. I, I, I remember like when it, first was mentioned that there was like a virus um i think i made a joke we're at the hospital i was still working at the hospital i was sitting next to a friend of mine i like kind of like coughed like oh haha <coughs> i'm sick and like looking back it's like wow what an idiot i was um so hopefully that doesn't happen again but um yeah like world scale war that yeah i would say low but obviously that doesn't nece- yeah does not at all take away from the gravity of the situation currently going on um the difficulty of the situation as far as how do you actually get a good solution to I think <clears throat> if you would have asked me this question say 3 2 or 3 weeks ago I might have said 7.5 um now i'd say six uh just based upon the um reports of the success of israelis uh uh accessing some of the underground tunnels and such yeah similar to what matt said it does make you more cognizant of how how fragile the world's national systems are um hmm 
I won't overextend it. That's my answer. <laughs> yeah, I had six in mind as well. I think it feels like a six and definitely trending downwards, falling. I think where it feels like it's above a five anyway is the the fragility of other regions. I mean, I think Russia's still kind of Russia and Ukraine are still going on. There is some interconnectedness to those powers. You kind of, I don't, China always seems like it's lurking or working on something. Um, so I think there's pent up potential conflict as we've discussed in the past. And where I think it also, some of the reasoning more than a five is it, um, it will take some cooler heads and some leadership and diplomacy to like steer us out of it. Why it's not a two is like, it can't, probably can't stay like this forever and be fine. I think it does need actively quelled back to ensure peace, which will take some work. I think you know, the reference one more bit of content from that outline. You sent the um, Israel version of SNL um, commenting. Propaganda. Pretending, yeah, talk, pretending they were talking to a Hamas terrorist from the perspective of a uh, Columbia University student who was like pro-Hamas without realizing that like Hamas would want to kill you for about a thousand different reasons. And I think that's, I think part of the less likely to that there's going to be some integration of powers between Russia or China and Arab or Muslim countries, because with, you know, not, your moderate Muslim, but your extremist Hamas, like, well, they, they, they can't co-govern with a non-Muslim country. I mean, they just, they want you dead, right? I mean, that's my interpretation. <laughs> okay. Speeches from the eighties done. We had Rocky. We had Ellie Wiesel. Harrison, well, not Harrison Ford, but the bad guy from Blade Runner. So, we are, this finishes the final true episode of the season. I think we're going to have a fun discussion episode, putting forth our best ideas for the speech series for 2024. You. We'll probably just, we'll probably just ask ChatGPT. <laughs> what to do <laughs> chat can do voices right they can do our voice and uh just say things we would say a couple more weeks till they launch that thanks for drinking oh man how thanks do we for drinking forgetting that and thinking <laughs> us with us, us. With... <laughs> no thanks for drinking <laughs> from the top with us thanks for drinking and thinking. <laughs> Us. You be safe out there now. Hey, cue the music. Dead ends come and go. Look toward the horizon. Up ahead.
peace of mind, relief from the trying. I have burned a bridge, wrecked in a ditch, had to ask forgiveness. Dead ends come and go, look toward the horizon. Oh, there are stories to tell, times we grew and the times we fell. Better place. Who will lead us to a better place?